Well, it is Good Friday, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and um, I don't know if many people really wonder anymore why it is good. It's naturally believed that God is good and that he must have done something good on Friday. Um, A popular thinking is because, well, it's God's job to do good things, and uh, we determine what those things are. Um, and uh, I've, I've heard it said that his, his main job is to forgive. That's what jo- God's job is. He, he forgives people. The famous poet W.H. Auden said, I, I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably, admirably arranged. Mm-hmm. 18th century Empress Catherine of Russia said, I shall be an autocrat. That is my trade. And the Lord will forgive me. That is his as if it's the job of God to just do forgiving. I think this is just Satan's attempt to convince men that sin is not really that much of a big deal. All that God needs to do is just forgive you. So all you need to do is maybe go talk to a priest or say something to somebody and you're forgiven. But what the cross proves is, is actually something quite different. And we're going to be looking at that today in Romans chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, would you take those out and turn to Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament. As you're turning to Romans 3, I'll just catch you up to the argument so far that he has written in chapters 1 and uh, 2. Basically, he's launched out saying that salvation has come to mankind, and it has come to mankind through the gospel. Um, in the verse that we've been memorizing as a church, actually, this past week, Romans 1.16, it says that very thing. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Salvation has come to everybody. And it's needed because, well, God is angry with mankind. And he's angry with mankind, and his wrath is being poured out upon mankind. And we find that out in verse Uh, 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul's just revealing these things as he's going through uh, the the chapters. And so by chapter 2, he's he's come to this conclusion that nobody is excluded because he knows there's people in that room going, well, not me, but those people. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge, for whatever, whatever you judge uh, another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So that's sort of a, to those people who go, well, I, I judge my goodness off of other people. I'm not, as, I'm not as bad as them. And he says, well, it doesn't matter who you are or how you're judging people. You do the same things. And so by the time he gets to chapter 3, it's bad news for mankind, just to kind of get you there. In chapter 3, verses 10 onward, this is his conclusion. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under the lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So his conclusion is this, that, that we need righteousness. God's wrath is being poured out against unrighteousness. We need righteousness, but we can't get it. We can't learn it. We can't seek it. We can't earn it. We can't purchase it. You can't pray for it. So it's, it's bad 
bad news. Righteousness has to come from the outside. And that's when the Jews say, oh, hey, that's good because God gave us the law. We have the law. That came from the outside. Man didn't give us the law. God gave us the law. And that's true. God did give them the law. But look what he says in verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law came and all the law did was show us that we are indeed sinners. If you were to sort of market this in a marketing campaign, it might look something like like this. There's the law. It's 100% pure. You like that? Contains no justification. All those people out there with the no, no gluten and no dairy and no whatever it might be, no justification. What does it do? Well, it promotes the knowledge of sin. It makes you accountable. He says it shuts the mouths so that the whole world may be guilty. I wonder how many people then would buy that can of law. Probably not many. No one is righteous. So what we desperately need is righteousness. God's wrath is coming against us. We can't get it from the law. All the law did was show us that, that we are lawless. So where are we going to get this righteousness from? Well, verses 21 to 26 is what we're going to study tonight, briefly. Reveal the solution to the problem. And I will tell you that many scholars have said that this is probably the most important single paragraph ever written. It begins with the word but for a really good reason. It just ended with very bad news for mankind. And I'm very glad that there is a but that came. Mankind is doomed. You have no way out. But, oh, please, I'm so glad there's a but. You should circle that but in your Bible. It's a very big but, very important but to have. But says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. We need righteousness, and we're told it's the righteousness of God. Let's hang on a second. What is righteousness? We talk about God's righteousness. What is that? It's an attribute. It's an attribute of God's character. When we speak about God, we speak of him being, being fair, true, just, uh, holy. Well, his righteousness is the utter rightness of his character, that he always does things rightly. John Stott said the righteousness of God is a combination of his righteous character, his saving initiative, and his gift of a righteous standing before him. It is his justification of the unjust, his righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. That sounds very intellectual and very confusing, and we're going to kind of see how that comes out to play in this passage today. The righteousness that we so desperately needed had to come from somewhere. It couldn't come from ourselves. had to come from outside of man, and so it came from God. Not from the law, totally apart from the law. So if you were to market the righteousness, well, it might look like something like, like this slide. God's own righteousness, now available apart from the law. It's for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's available through Jesus. That is the idea there. This is something new. This is something never heard of before. And notice that tag, now available through Jesus. See, the righteousness, we're told, of God was revealed. That word means to make manifest, to make known. It was revealed to us. Through Jesus, and what we're going to look at tonight in our text is the connection between Jesus and his cross and God and his righteousness. 
because there is a connection, a very important one. So the title is The Righteousness of the Cross, The Righteousness of the Cross. And we're going to look at verses 21 to 26. Let me just read through the passage in whole, and then we'll begin. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today, Lord. And we pray as we're about to go into this very, very important passage that your spirit would be with us, Lord, that you'd guide us into truth, that you would help reveal to our hearts that can sometimes be so hard. Reveal these truths to us, Lord. Help us to understand them because they are so vitally important. So bless us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just looking at verse 1, or verse 21, the first verse in our passage, we see that there is a witness to his righteousness. Or you could say witness is. It says, the righteousness of God apart from the law, remember it couldn't come from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it came apart from the law, and Paul, Paul had already kind of demonstrated that it couldn't come through the law. Um, and it says the law and the prophets are witnessed to the fact that God's righteousness has been revealed. When you hear the term law and prophets, it's speaking of all of the Old Testament. That's what it's referring to. So the Old Testament witnesses to uh, God's righteousness. And Paul, he kind of began telling his audience that uh, that was the case back in chapter 1. If you just want to look at it, back to chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Romans, really quick. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul's already kind of let that cat out of the bag, that the gospel was actually something prophesied in the Old Testament, in the Holy Scriptures, by the prophets, specifically concerning Jesus Christ. And the New Testament writers understood this as as well. Obviously, Paul did, but take a look at Peter. Peter wrote something very similar to this in chapter uh, 1 of his letter, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, even the prophets who prophesied were trying to to figure it all out. Where is this grace going to come from? How is this going to work through the sufferings of this Messiah? They were trying to figure it all out. And I think certainly probably one of the most graphically uh, graphic illustrations of this is in the New Testament when Jesus, after his resurrection, was walking along a road. He came across two men on the road to Emmaus. And he said this in Luke chapter 24. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning in Moses, so that's the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
If there was a lecture I want to be at, it'd be that one. <laughs> Jesus is walking with some guys and said, let me take you to the Old Testament and show you where it talked about me. But just to give you an idea, I'll just pick two places. You go to the book of Psalms, which is a bunch of songs, isn't it? And just picking out the scriptures that prophesied of Jesus coming to die and to rise again, we have tons of predictions prophesying of that fact. Christ would come to do the will of the Father, Psalm chapter 40. That he would be hated unjustly, Psalm 35. That he would be scorned and ridiculed, Psalm 22. That he would be betrayed by a friend, Judas, Psalm 41. That his hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm 22 as well. That others would gamble for his clothes while he hung on the cross, 22 as well. Not one of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34. That God would forsake him in his moment of agony, Psalm 22. And also that Christ would be resurrected from the grave, Psalm 16. I just chose a, a small handful just to give you an idea of how much the Old Testament, the Psalms, talked about the sufferings of Christ. There are many more. In the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet we hear that the Christ would be born of a virgin and that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us, that he would be a son, that he would set his face to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And that's exactly what Jesus said he did in Luke, uh, Luke as well. Israel also, his people would fail to recognize him as their Messiah as prophesied in Isaiah 53, that he would remain silent at his trial, Isaiah 53, that he would be beaten and spat upon in Isaiah 50, and that he would be sacrificed as a lamb to the slaughter, becoming the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, just as John the Baptist said, proclaimed him to be. Even the Old Testament prophets spoke of a, of a new covenant, a new promise that God would make, make with man. Let me give, give you one example in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, so God was going to send his spirit. He was going to give people a new fleshy heart rather than a heart of stone. And the one whom he would use to make it all possible was Jesus. Of course, we've been going through the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So in the Old Testament, that testified to the coming of the righteousness of God, and that would, it would come in the person of Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus. So the Old Testament testifies, it's a witness to his righteousness. Secondly, there are recipients of his righteousness. His righteousness has come, but it's come to certain people. Look at what it says in verse 22, back in our passage in Romans 3. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love that it says to all and on all who believe. The offer of God's righteousness is to all, and it's on all because, remember, all have sinned. All of man is under God's wrath. All man needs his unrighteousness. There's no, there's no holy sector. There's no holy group. Everyone needs it. So it's all who believe, it says. Um, and now we all need that because we've all sinned. All fallen short of the glory of God is what it says. That means that we've missed the mark, missed the mark of perfection. Um, the truth of Scripture is that 
that it, you're, you are called, and I, I hate to tell you this if you don't know this already, but, but you are called to perfection. The bar is unreachable. If you wanted to get to heaven by your works, it's perfection. Anyone perfect in the room? Probably no perfect people. It's one of the reasons I know the Bible's true, because man-made religions set the bar at an easily attainable height. Oh, I can get to heaven if I just accomplish these things. I can just get over this hurdle. But the bar is set too high in the Bible. It is perfection. It's the mark of the glory of God. No one has that. We've all fallen short of that. It says there's no difference. There's no difference. We've all sinned. And Paul's primarily meaning there's no difference between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles, those who didn't have the law, but even the Jews who sort of maybe felt a little self-righteous who did have the law, there is no difference. They both need the righteousness of God. But I do want to draw your attention to what it says, that it, that it only comes to all who believe. Do you see it there? It only comes to all who believe. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ is what it says. In fact, I have to tell you, faith is the only channel by which God's righteousness can come to us. It's the only one. Scripture only gives us that. I want you to see that it's elsewhere in the passage. In verse 25, just skip down and look at it. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, how? Through faith. Look at 26 as well, the end of 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does it actually mean to have faith? We hear this phrase so, so much. What does it mean to have, have faith? Well, this is a reference to saving faith. And nowhere in Scripture is this ever referred to anywhere as a one-time event. Maybe you've heard that's true. Maybe you've heard that there's something you can do at some point in your life that saves you and that you can kind of go on your merry way. I got to tell you, that isn't in my Bible. It might be in others, but it certainly isn't in God's word. Saving faith is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing condition. I am in a place of faith. And we have been seeing this in the book of Hebrews. I mean, you couldn't have missed it at this point, could you? Let me just remind you of what we've seen so far in Hebrews on our studies on Sunday. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 said, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence, the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. If I stay in that condition of faith. Hebrews 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then a chapter later, chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold on to your faith. Remain in that place of faith. You notice something about faith? It's never just about believing something to be true. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that even demons believe Even demons believe they have that kind of belief, that kind of faith. Makes no difference. What faith means is is loyalty. It means keeping faith. God's faithfulness to us. He's a faithful. He keeps his loyalty to us. Therefore, our faith means our loyalty to him. Paul calls it in chapter 1, the obedience of the faith. In chapter 1, verse 5. The obedience of the faith means then to believe the promises of God and therefore to obey the commands of God. Does that make sense? It goes together. We cannot come under God's gracious protection from his wrath without coming under his rule. 
and there is no salvation without submission. John 14, 21 says this, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, many theologians believe that true saving faith actually consists of three, three elements, if you will, the mental, the emotional, and the volitional. The mental is the understanding, that we understand the gospel and that we believe the truth about Christ in the gospel. There has to be a mental understanding of that, which is why we understand that, that children of certain ages are, are too young for salvation because they can't understand it. The mental part of it isn't engaged. But then there is the emotional as well. When we come to an understanding, we must embrace those truths. The truth of the fact that we're sinners with sorrow, with, with grief. But also then we, we cling to the grace and mercy with joy. The emotion is not detached from that at all. But then the volitional is submitting our, our will to the will of Christ. I, I give that to him alone for salvation. All three of those things must be in, engaged. In other words, to say it this way, you could say God's offer of righteousness must be accepted by the sinner. It's not the idea that God has just come down and said, I've just given forgiveness to everybody. No, there has to be an acknowledgement of that and an acceptance of it and then a submission to him. I believe it and I trust it. It says it comes to the one who has faith only in Jesus, verse 26. But I want you to notice another part of this. Very important, the source of the righteousness, the source of a righteousness. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace, be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that word justification. We're going to come to some very important words here, and I want to make sure we define them as we go and not just run over them. That word justification is dikaiao. And it means to declare or to pronounce or render somebody or something righteous. All right? It's a legal term. Its opposite is condemnation. Some say that justification and, say, pardon are the same, but they're not. They're distinct. To be pardoned is to be forgiven of a crime, isn't it? You've committed a crime, but you're forgiven of it. To be justified is to to be declared not guilty of the crime, not guilty of it. Back in the 80s, there was a famous trial of uh, O.J. Simpson. Maybe you heard of that. And his defense attorney, Johnny Cochran, came up with a very smart rhyme to get it into the, submit it to the heads of the jurors that if the evidence didn't fit, then you must acquit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And that word acquit means to relieve from a charge of fault or crime. That is the idea. Justification is to be relieved of the charge or the fault of it. We're justified, we're told, freely by his grace. That's the source of the justification, his grace. That's the fundamental truth of the gospel. It's the saving initiative of God. It's by his grace, his absolutely free and utterly undeserved favor. We just showed you that in the beginning of this. John Stott said this, grace is God-loving, God-stooping, God-coming to the rescue, God-giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. But if you think about this, this raises an issue, and I want to address it real quick. How is justification of people who are definitely guilty of a crime, how, how is that fair? How is that right? If God justifies sinners um, freely by his grace, well, what grounds does he do that by? How is it possible for a righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either, A, compromising his righteousness 
or B, condoning their unrighteousness. See, it kind of puts God in a pickle. And the answer is amazing. It's the cross, Christ and his cross. It's the grounds of our justification. And I want you to see it in the second half of verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption, that's a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace. It's used uh, of the Old Testament slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. They were said then to be redeemed. So that word redemption, apalutrasis, is deliverance, it's it's liberation, it's release by payment of, of a ransom. You and I have been redeemed. We've been liberated. Mark 10, 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, a purchase for many. So since he purchased us, we now belong to him. Do you ever think about Jesus owning you, you belonging to him? Do you think of yourself that way? You should. Galatians 2.20, we've been memorizing that verse as well. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. See, Jesus Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of bondage to our sin and and guilt, and his his blood was the ransom price. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption, there's that word, freedom, liberation, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his Grace, and this brings up a question. We sang about it as well. Why blood? Why are Christians crazy about blood? I had an a English teacher named Mr. Scruggs, and he, he, just, he, he knew I was a Christian. He said, why are you guys so crazy about blood? You sing about bathing in blood, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You, that's just disgusting. And he just had the worst view of it. Well, the answer comes here in verse 25. Look at it. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, one of the kids read this word, and they did a great job pronouncing it, propitiation. Here's another big word, hilasterion. Hilasterion is the word, and it means to appease or to placate. So propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away the wrath. It's a wrath quencher is how I usually call it. It satisfies God's anger. You remember how God is angry with mankind at the beginning? Well, this satisfies his anger. Now, some of you are sitting here going, I don't like that word. I don't like, I don't like hearing that word. That, that's saying that God gets angry and that we have to just appease him. It sounds like those pagan gods of old, doesn't it? I want to just walk you through three things really quickly to show you that is quite a difference. The pagan gods of old, it is true. They propitiation, I got to say it right. Propitiation was necessary. Because the pagan gods were bad-tempered. They were subject to mood fits. They were unpredictable. And so they had to be appeased. They had to be placated. Here's the Christian answer. God's holy wrath rests on evil and evil alone. That is it. There's there's nothing unprincipled. There's nothing unpredictable uh, about that. There's nothing uncontrolled about God's anger as he's just flinging lightning bolts all over the place. It's aroused by evil alone. And even upon his own chosen people. We've seen that even coming through Hebrews. But let me give you an example in Jeremiah 44, verse 4. However, I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. He says, I sent the prophets to you to tell you, stop doing things I hate. He hates sin. And maybe you've heard that. Yeah, that's it. God hates the sin. He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates sin. Oh, are you sure about that? 
Psalm 34, verses 15 to 16, says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. His wrath is not just against the sin of man. His wrath is against man. He's against the sinner. So why is the propitiation necessary? Because God's wrath is on evil and evil alone. And in the end, to show the difference between the pagan gods of old and uh, our, our God, well, who does the propitiation? Who, who does that? Well, you, you had to go and offer things to the God to placate them, didn't you? To appease them. Uh, fruits, uh, vegetables, animals, even human sacrifices, right? Those happened because they were trying to please the anger of the gods. Here's the Christian answer. You can't. You cannot appease the anger of God. You have no offering to make. You are empty-handed. You cannot placate his anger with anything. You have no means, whatever, by which to do so. That puts you in a hard place. Puts me in a hard place. We have no way to, to appease God's righteous anger against sin. And this is a hard thing for people. We're so used to hearing the love of God, the love of God. God is love, and I want to show you how God is love. But, but listen, there were, there were pastors of old who used to talk a lot more about God's, God's anger, God's wrath. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Kofi read, read us a, a section of that with the men uh, the other night and Wednesday, Wednesday night. And I had brought it up, and then he said, oh, I have a quote from that. And the reason I had brought it up, because I was going to read a quote from it tonight. But let me just give you the beginning, beginning of it. This is the kind of sermon that was meant to, to touch the souls of men. It's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, are in the hands of an angry God. That's a different sermon than you hear uh, today. Listen, God is love, and I want to show you how. How could propitiation be accomplished? How could that happen? God, in his undeserved love, has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, notice what it says, set forth or presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. He provided the propitiation. He did it. 1 John 4, 9 to 10, it was read this, uh, this morning. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, that is love, is what I'm saying. Oh, God does love people, but guess what? He was angry with man, but he provided a way out. He appeased his own anger upon his own son, poured out his wrath. Charles Cranford says, God, because in his mercy, he willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purposed to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. So if you sum up the differences between the thinking of a, of a pagan god 
uh, human beings are trying to appease those bad-tempered, moody, unprincipled deities with their own paltry offerings. We have nothing to offer. But John Stott puts it this way, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. In short, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. I've always wondered where I got that quote from. There it is, John Stott. So the sacrifice on the cross was the perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God. And the final point is the proof of his righteousness. And we'll end this really quickly here. Verse 25, look at it. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word demonstration in dyxis is to prove or demonstrate as a sign or evidence. The cross was a demonstration. It was a public revelation as well as an accomplishment of the propitiation. It demonstrated publicly God's righteousness. God, we're told, set forth Jesus as a propitiation. Maybe you've heard people say this. Why do Christians make such a big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? Thousands of people died on the cross. Yes, that is a good question. Why do we make such a big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? Because in Jesus, God was demonstrating his righteousness. Not on any other individual in history did God demonstrate his righteousness on them. Why? They're guilty. God sent his own dear son, his perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb to die for us so that his anger could be appeased. And guess what? It was done publicly. It wasn't done in some dark alley. He wasn't mugged in a corner. He didn't die of old age, uh, you know, in a mantra on a hill somewhere. He was done publicly, brutally in Jerusalem so that we'd be a demonstration. And that's why we know it exists today. We know of the crucifixion. It proved righteousness had come. And God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Doesn't that remind you of something? Passed over the sins that were previously committed? There was a Passover. The angel of death came through Egypt when they had the, the Hebrew slaves. And if those Hebrew slaves stayed indoors and put blood on the doorpost and the lintel, they were safe from the angel of God. He would just pass over. What about what about all those Old Testament saints? What, what has God done with all those who have sinned all through the centuries? He's passed over their sins. God has done that. He justified that adulterer, that murderer, King David. Why? Because of his righteousness, righteousness that would come through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He justified or declared not guilty all who are covered by that one sacrifice so he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amazing. So God proved that he could justify sinners because he did punish sin. He did it publicly. He set forth. He made a demonstration of his righteousness, and he did it on the cross at Calvary. His justice demands that every sin and every sinner be punished, but those who have faith in Jesus will not experience punishment. The punishment has been taken away. It's been appeased. Those who choose not to believe in Jesus, well, they're still under God's wrath, but there's still time to come under Christ. And this is why Christians make such a big deal about the cross. Because on the cross, we see the righteousness of God, and that's why it's such a good Friday. Let me pray. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to have communion today on Good Friday. 
We're told to gather together. We're told to remember what he's done, and we talked about it, but we're going to pass around the elements today. And, and it's for, if it's for the church, it's for believers, and if, if you feel uncomfortable, just let it pass by you. No big deal. And hang on to the elements until the end. We're going to have a special song by Haley, a song that she's written called uh, At the Cross. Is it At the Cross? And, and, um, and uh, <laughs> okay. And then we'll eat and drink together at the, uh, the end of the song. But let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, the truth of the righteousness that was seen on that cross, Lord, that could not be missed, a public demonstration that you provided atonement for the sins of man. God, I pray that, that people would hear this truth. What, this is why it's the gospel. It's such good news. We're in a bad state. Mankind is under the wrath of God and deserves to be, but God has provided a way out and is through Jesus and him alone. May people hear the truth and respond. Lord, bless us now as we prepare to take of the communion, to remember uh, the life of Christ, what he lived for us, what he did for us, and the death that he died. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.